Would you take your Bible and open to Matthew 16? And as you turn there, Matthew 16, if you're using the Blue Bibles, it's on page 822. As you turn there, I just want to say uh, thank you for your prayers for my family as we were gone away on vacation and for me to speak at my parents' church. I think your prayers were very much answered. Uh, thank you for continuing to pray for the saints there at Grace Baptist Church that they would continue to grow and thrive in the gospel. Uh, I'm also just thankful for your existence as a church, uh, the fact that we got to come back and know that this family was waiting for us was a huge encouragement to us, a great blessing. I love you dearly. My family loves you dearly. Your love, even in our absence from you, was known and felt, so we appreciate that greatly. We are this morning beginning a five-week series on the gospel and the church. You will see the outline and the inside back flap of that bulletin you're handed. This is different from what we normally do. Normally we would pick a book and work through it consecutively, expositionally, book of the Bible. Instead, for these five weeks, we're going to pick up a topic that is relevant and important for us as a church and examine what scripture has to say about it. I sent an email out this week to many of you explaining why the elders thought this particular topic would be helpful to our church at this time. For some of us, examining the purpose and the function and the organization of the church around the gospel will be a brand new thing for you to consider. For others, it will be repetition. But for all of us, My prayer is that this time helps us grow in better understanding God's plans for us, his purposes behind those plans, and that we would indeed experience the unity that comes from being gathered around his gospel as a church. The Bible has a lot to say about the gospel and the church. I'm going to pick in these five weeks, select some passages to consider, but know that these passages do not represent everything the Bible says about this. There is plenty of room to take our study and use it to promote more study about these things. There are a lot of helpful resources that I could point you to or that you could even find when it is accessible and not blocked by pews on our bookstall upstairs. We start this morning by thinking about the church that is built on the gospel and the importance of confession. By confession, I mean something different than what Paul Long led us through a few moments ago, where we walk in the light of Christ by humbly admitting our sins to our Heavenly Father and asking for His forgiveness. By confession this morning, I mean a declaration of belief. A declaration of belief. Now, historically, the Christian church, all the way back to the time of the apostles, has maintained confessions of faith. Summary statements about what Christians believe the Bible says is true. Paul himself writes one in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. So as we think about our confession, we are recognizing that we are just continuing a long-held practice. Regularly confessing the historic creeds in our gatherings as we do, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Even our statement of faith that we read a portion of earlier in our service. That is a historic confession of what churches have declared to be core teachings of the Bible for decades, even centuries. These confessions have helped the church stay guarded 
and protected from steering into error and unbelief, but doing so around a truth that comes from the outside of the church, from God's revelation in the scriptures, not generating from beliefs that this church has simply made up. Now, I think this kind of attachment to and function of confessions is largely foreign in the world today. In a culture inundated with, we could argue, way too many words, actions feel more important than stated beliefs. People are declaring things all the time as truth or fact, and yet we as a culture have humorously just started to understand, oh, those declarations might have been made up entirely or heavily shaded or biased at least. We are highly suspicious, both of the role and relevance that positive declarations of what you believe have for our life. Now, arguments often get made even within Christian circles that we need to minimize our confessions and major on our actions. You might be wondering this morning, what good could come from drawing definitive lines around exactly what we believe, especially when it's going to accentuate where we differ from others in the world, even those who we understand to be our Christians in other churches. Wasn't Jesus focused more on doing than on doctrines? Didn't he spend more time helping people than he did telling them what to believe and confess is true? Interestingly, the first public recorded conversation Jesus had about the church had to do with the importance of the church's confession. We go to Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Here, Jesus outlines, one, our gospel confession, and two, the importance of that confession for the church. So that will be the outline of my rest of my time this morning. Our gospel confession, point one and the importance of that confession for our church. Point number two. Let's read Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So as we think about our gospel confession, look at this passage with me. This conversation is coming just after two interactions Jesus has with two different groups that are both marked by confusion and a lack of clarity. So in chapter 16, 1 to 4, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees demand Jesus perform a miraculous sign to demonstrate that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Christ, the promised deliverer. Now Jesus had... In Matthew already proved that 
with a number of signs, but this particular group just continues in their unwillingness to believe in him or to positively declare him to be the Savior. So in verse 4, Jesus says they would remain where they were, without the sign and without faith. Jesus' own followers, though, are also confused and unclear about who Jesus is, right there in chapter 16, 5 to 12. They don't understand his teachings, his warnings. They don't appropriately interpret his miraculous feeding of 5,000 people to point to him as the obvious son of God and Messiah. They, too, are locked in an inability to understand, believe, and declare who Jesus is. So in verse 13... Jesus helps his disciples in this. All we lack, remember, Jesus provides. He proposes a question. Who do people say I am? Popular answers to that question were that Jesus was a prophet, a major religious figure in Israel's history, a firebrand maybe with a message from God. But then Jesus directs the question at his disciples. Who do you say? Say, say that I am. An important question for each of us. In each of our cases, Jesus isn't really concerned about what people we know think about him. He asks you and I, do you believe in me? And Peter, speaking for the disciples, in a moment strikingly different from the confusion and lack of clarity marking the previous conversation, speaks a succinct confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, how Peter and the disciples emerge from their confusion into this confession, we'll see in a minute. But let's just camp out on the confession itself for just a moment. Notice that the confession is about Jesus. That Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of sinners, and the Son of God. I will continue to talk this morning about the importance of our confession. But hear me, that confession means nothing if void of Jesus. He is the object of our faith and our trust. He is the one we are relying on even as we say He is our Savior. When we say He is the Christ... We are trusting in our, in, in our hearts, hopefully, that he saves us. When we say he is God's son, we are hopefully acknowledging that only he can redeem us from sin and so regularly turning to him for help. And this confession is what Jesus is after. Jesus was not embarrassed by his identity. Nor was he, because of that, trying to keep it hidden from people. Quite the contrary. Actually, in the call to worship that Chris read from Philippians 2, 9 through 11, as we opened our service, that call to worship shows us that all human history leads to a universal declaration by every creature made that Jesus is the anointed king of all. So this observation reframes our ambitions To now live for Jesus' praise, not man's praise. All praise, in the end, will go to Jesus. All other misplaced and misdirected praise will evaporate. So let's ask ourselves this week, what is what I'm living for 
What is what I'm choosing? What is what I'm prioritizing? Have to do with the eternal praise of Jesus. And may God give us his help and grace that upon seeing places we've invested in evaporating praise, he will help us turn again with joy and gladness to give all our lives for the eternal praise of Jesus. So this confession is about Jesus and the confession is true. Notice Jesus, the one who is the truth, the one who speaks the truth, affirms this statement by Peter as true. He is encouraging his disciples to see and believe that what Peter says about him is true, that he is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament, that he is alone the source of our salvation. Jesus recognizes that there are those who will stumble and shout in confusion, those who will vigorously insist that Jesus was just a man and not God. And there are those who will prop up a false gospel that there is salvation in yourself and others besides in Jesus. Even so, Jesus is the truth. And some will happily see and say, Jesus, you are my Savior. So the confession is true. And therefore, the confession leads to a full and right understanding of the gospel. Now, built into Peter's confession are essential truths that you must know and believe if you are going to be saved. You cannot say less than Peter and be a follower of Christ. But there is more to be said. Before the confession Peter gives becomes a complete picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. So look down right after this paragraph in verse 21 through 23, Jesus will move on to fill out the picture and teach them what it means that he is the Christ. What it means that he will suffer and die and rise from the dead and save us from our sins. And at that point, Peter, with his bold confession, will stumble. Because Peter thought Jesus as the Christ at this point meant Jesus as the earthly political ruler. But Jesus says that he will be the king who gives his life to give life to us. Then notice in the next paragraph, verse 24 to 28, Jesus not only clarifies what it means to be the Christ, but then he tells them what it will look like for a person to recognize that he is the son of the living God person who is happy to swear off all other previously previous allegiances and instead follow Jesus. That is the person who has a share in this son of God's kingdom. So notice how Peter is going to grow from this simple confession. And be encouraged that as we grow in our Christian lives, we expect to, like Peter, have Jesus lead us to a greater and greater understanding and appreciation for who he is and what he's done. I expect we'll get to enjoy that together as his people. Now, Jesus doesn't recognize any confession as true that alters, ignores, or refutes the gospel. Any individual or church that moves away from this confession is in grave spiritual danger. Paul writes in Galatians 1a, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, 
let him be accursed. So friends, it's an act of love when we warn a person who confesses Christ, but is beginning to move away from believing what Christ taught, what Christ did to secure our eternal rest with him. Quinn helped us. Thank you, Quinn. You helped us so much in your last two sermons, helping us to see how Romans 5 makes the true gospel abundantly clear to us. Our right standing before God can happen only by Christ perfectly obeying the law and then receiving on himself the wrath of God against our sin. Our attachment to Jesus' righteousness is a gift of his grace and received by faith, not by work. May our constant confession be that Christ alone is our salvation. So the confession leads to a full and right understanding of the gospel. The last feature of this confession that I want us to see is that the confession is a blessing for those who make it. Jesus pronounces Peter blessed. When God says you're blessed, he means to assure you that you have found the true way to life. Think about the blessed man in Psalm 1. He lives with God. His life flourishes like a tree planted by water. He enjoys a prosperous future. His eternal home will forever be with God. So there in verse 17, Jesus blesses Peter because in the confession of Christ, Peter has found the way to life. Peter, Jesus calls Peter Bar-Jonah, I think, to take us back to verse 4. Where the Pharisees stumbled demanding a sign, Peter sees the point and purpose of every sign. And it's Jesus, the Messiah and the Redeemer. Now in a world that might critique our creedal emphasis on Jesus as the only way, hear Jesus commending our vocal expression of his exclusivity. He is the Christ. And there is no other who can save. He is the son of the living God. And blessed are all who find access into his kingdom. Peter's statement then is a true statement. That shows us the Jesus Christ who brought us salvation through the gospel. Those who deny it are woefully cursed. Those who make it. Jesus says you are eternally blessed. So having considered that first point, our gospel confession, let's move on to our second main point this morning, the importance of our gospel confession. I'm going to read verse 17 to 19 again. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, up to this point in Matthew's narrative, in the whole book, the main focus thus far has been showing that Jesus came from God as the anointed king and deliverer from David's line. But now, from this point forward, the way of his deliverance will be revealed as Jesus shifts his attention to his coming death and resurrection. 
And as that way unfolds, Jesus also begins to use a new word, a word which none of the other gospel writers use, but that the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament will use a lot. Church. A word that means a gathering of people. Notice in Matthew 16 that the revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ is inseparably linked with the creation of a gospel people in Jesus Christ called the church. That word describes, of course, the universal church. All the people who will gather in heaven who were saved by Jesus across time and space. But the New Testament also uses that word for the local expressions of that universal body. Like this local church, Warnell Road Baptist Church. For every Christian, Jesus intends you to be meaningfully connected to his gathered people. More than attending services on Sunday, but instead committing together to uphold the gospel as believers in our life. What we commit to and covenanted to do when we join this church, Warner Road. This is what we're here for. This is what we are to do. Jesus links the confession and the church. And I want us to examine this more closely. According to Jesus, our true confession of him is integral to what it means to be his people. And in verse 17, 18, and 19, Jesus explains why this confession is so important. Because our gospel confession identifies us as God's people. Because our gospel confession is our foundation as God's people. And because our gospel confession is our authorization as God's people in this world. Identification, foundation, and authorization. The importance of our gospel confession for our identification is there in verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus' statement here, his response to Peter's confession, rings like a clear bell in the middle of the context we already saw, full of a lack of clarity and confusion around who Jesus is. As if Jesus is saying, that's it, Peter. That's it. That's the answer. I am the answer to the brokenness of this world. I am the salvation delivered from heaven to bring men and women and children back to God. Given that the disciples a few verses ago were trying to figure out what Jesus was talking about, we should not assume that Peter reached this even more significant conclusion about Jesus by himself. What Peter now knows and confesses comes as a result of God the Father opening up Peter's mind and heart to see and believe. Something like the regeneration we confess God goes about doing earlier in our service. Just that. God must first work before any of us can know Jesus. From Jesus' own mouth in John 6, he said, no one can come to the Father except the Father draws him. Even those of us who in our testimony would say that at some point we got fed up with all the teachings and philosophies of this world and we went on a quest to find what was true. Even us 
who went on journeys to find truth and found Jesus, know that that happened because on our way, God graciously met us, not because we mapped a course to him. Now that Peter makes this confession, Jesus places Peter in a different category. He is among the blessed. And as we'll see in a moment, one of a larger body called the church. The Father privately comes to us and shows us Christ. Shows us our sin. Shows us our need for his death. But when we see him, the Father gently moves us to then start publicly revealing that we know him to others. The act of confessing Christ like Peter does is not what saves him or me or you, but it is the first way we show that God has saved us. I'll often encourage new believers to tell their friends and family when the moment is ripe and new and fresh, tell as many people as they can what God has done for them. Because Jesus wants them to take their faith in him public. We're going to think more about that next week as we think about baptism. We're even going to get to witness how that works when Andreas comes and and is baptized, Lord willing, next week. But notice, even before that, is the importance of a verbal testimony of true belief. The thief on the cross never got baptized, but he saw and declared that Jesus was the one he needed to be forgiven by. He asked for his mercy and was promised eternal salvation by Jesus. According to Romans 10, 9 through 10, that we confess in our assurance of pardon earlier, this confession is vital to understanding whether or not you are a Christian. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark's telling of this event in Mark 8, 38, Jesus finishes finishes his explanation that by confessing and following Jesus, we are effectively showing that we are not ashamed of Jesus. For whoever, he says, is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So this confession is vital for you to understand that you're a Christian, but it is also vital for us as Christians to understanding who else is a Christian. Only those who God has revealed himself to are his people. And only his people truly believe and then proclaim that he is the savior and the son of God. Now, sure, sure. There are lots of people who will, through history, claim Jesus verbally, but don't follow him. But there is not anyone who truly knows the Lord, but won't claim him before others. What then does all this have to do with why the gospel confession is important to us as a church? Well, Matthew 16 shows us how Jesus Christ himself recognized and affirmed the necessity of a true confession as a mark of a true Christian. It is the first thing that publicly demonstrates that the Father has given us salvation through revealing Christ to our hearts and causing us to believe in him. 
If this was Jesus' practice and precedent, then it should be ours as a church. But that is getting ahead of Jesus. So we'll wait on that for just a moment while we consider a second reason Jesus says our gospel confession is important, and it is for our foundation. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Greek name Peter means rock. So Jesus uses where he wants to go in this conversation and that similarity for a good purpose to make a point how Peter's confession will factor into Jesus's future work. Now, those of you with a with a Roman Catholic background, especially you might be wondering, is Jesus saying like you may have been taught like the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Jesus is promising to build his church on Peter, thus instituting an, an apostolic succession of authority that flows down through the Pope. Well, that interpretation would require that Jesus affirms here that he is building the church on Peter, the rock. But when you look at how the sentence works here, even more clear, and I hate to use this card, I'd be happy to talk to you about it more, even more clear in the Greek grammar. His reference reference point away from Peter, whose name means rock, to this rock is a way to show us he's thinking of another rock entirely. So what other rock could it be in the context besides Peter? Well, wouldn't it be what the Father in heaven revealed to Jesus? And what is that? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus teaches Peter that the public declaration of who he is and what he did is foundational to how Jesus will go about building the church. It's not that Peter will have nothing to do with that work. In fact, he'll be the first public witness to the resurrected Christ at Pentecost in Acts 2. But Peter's own actions in Acts and his writings and his own letters show that he understood Jesus to be saying the confession of Christ is foundational, not Peter's own authority. What do we find Peter doing in Acts? In Acts 2, we find him telling people that Jesus, who was crucified and raised, is Lord and Christ, and that people should repent and put their trust in him. Does he refer to himself as the head of the church ever? Never. Instead, in 1 Peter 5.1, he says to other elders that he is just one of them and that Christ, 1 Peter 2.6, is the cornerstone. So as we've been seeing in our recent sermon series, the book of Acts itself illustrates Jesus' assurance to Peter that nothing, not even hell, could prevail over gospel confession. No matter who or what comes against the apostles and the church, The kingdom of Jesus will inevitably keep growing through the proclamation of Christ as Lord and Savior. Yes, most of the apostles, including Peter, are martyred. But because Christ is preached, the church lives on. In verse 18, Jesus gives a clear statement about where he is going to work. Is Jesus going to build in the government 
No. Is Jesus going to build in the school system? No. Is Jesus building in the marketplace? No. Jesus is building in the church, in the gathering of his people who the Father drew and Jesus died to save. So it shows us where he's going to work. It also shows us how Jesus is going to work through faithful gospel confession. Peter affirms this in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What makes the church grow in Jesus's metrics of growth is God's power that comes through the confession of the gospel that by the spirit lands on hearts to save, encourage, convict, and mature. So we could have not ripped up the carpets and had ugly carpets for the rest of our life as a church and still be a church. We could not have a building at all and still be the place where Jesus works. As long as our hearts and our mouths keep agreeing that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We can know the blessing of the Spirit working in and through us, even if the laws of our country change and we are a persecuted people. We can have ongoing eternal security no matter what others may say about what we believe because if hell can't defeat Jesus' purposes through the gospel, I am sure nobody else can either. Now it is sobering to think that an implication of Jesus' statement here is that if you lose the gospel, you aren't a church anymore. Because Jesus only attaches himself and his work to true confession of who he is. Now, by no means, by no means do I think it is the role of our church or our job to be the true church police. But we can judge on the basis of how Jesus himself judges. Any group that denies the deity of Jesus is not part of the kingdom of God. Any group that teaches there is salvation available besides that which comes from Christ alone, by his grace alone, through faith alone, is resting on another foundation besides the gospel. It is also sobering to think that we, as fallen human beings, are as susceptible as any other group to wander away from the gospel. This is why we must keep asking for mercy and grace. That God would keep us faithful and fixed to the foundation that is Christ. The New Testament writers are very sensitive to this possibility. Repeatedly encouraging pastors and churches to hold fast the gospel confession. In places like 1 Timothy 6.12 and Hebrews 10.23. This is why so much of what we do as a church is seeking to make sure we're staying directly on the foundation of the gospel. This is why every week we have a service that takes us through the gospel again. In praise of God who made us. In recognition of the sin which separates us from him. In thanks for the gift that Jesus gave of his life to grant us pardon. And in hopeful confidence to seek to walk with him until he brings us home. This is why our statement of faith is the one we've adopted. Repeating. This is why we repeat foundational things about what is so important to our eternal life. Like this sermon series. 
And this is why as we go out from these gatherings, we seek to regularly be guarding each other to make sure in love that our lives are matching what is true and warning each other when we seem to be swerving away into what is false. Jesus doesn't need us to protect his eternal work. His purposes always prevail. But for life, we need to be where Jesus is working. We need to be protected from straying where he is not. Gospel confession is foundationally important for us to be and remain Christ church. Thirdly, our gospel confession is important for our authorization. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When you read that, it seemed like to me when I was reading it this week again, it seems like these words at face value are given exclusively to Peter. But if you look over at Matthew 18, 18 and 19, Jesus says almost the exact same thing to all his disciples. And then in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus then turns and authorizes all his followers to go and make more followers. An authorization, we understand, comes directly to us as his followers today. Jesus' words then in Matthew 16, 19 are to be understood as connected to the conversation Jesus is having with Peter. Jesus marks Peter's true confession, promises that this is where and how he will work among his people, and in that work, Jesus has something for the church to do. To do. Jesus grants to Peter, and then to us, as we'll see in Matthew 18, the church, the role and authority to bind and loose, using imagery of keys, that lock and unlock a kingdom. This is a cosmic statement that Jesus is making. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church is a people entrusted with heavenly responsibilities to be exercised here on earth. What we are doing is eternal and spiritual in nature. So what does this binding and loosing with the keys do? Well, it functions to truly represent on earth what is truly the case in heaven. To get the sense of the verb tense in English here, it's probably better to read it this way. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. In other words, whatever already exists behind the gates of heaven... Jesus wants that to be in some way demonstrable to people on earth. In other words, he intends there to be a mirror of heaven here on this planet. What's inside heaven? All the people washed by Jesus' blood. Where do we see that in earth? Jesus says it's among the people who confess him and in the place where he is at work in the church. So then how does the church use these keys? Well, we'll examine that more closely in a few weeks when we talk about discipleship and discipline. But flip over to Matthew 18 that I just referred to. Verse 15 through 20. Where Jesus uses the same language about binding and loosing in a conversation about church discipline. Especially in verse 19 in Matthew 18. I just want you to see it. 
And there in that text, when the church confronts a professing Christian among them who is in unrepentant sin and either helps restore that person back to faith and repentance or responds to their continued unrepentance by declaring that they cannot claim to be part of Christ's church, that church in that action is using the authority given to bind and loose. I just want you to see it. There's so much more to say and look at, but we'll hold off till July 9th, Lord willing. Come back for that part. But what is most relevant for our time this morning is the connection between this authorization to represent heaven on earth and the gospel confession. If Jesus affirms Peter's confession and promises to build on that confession, then authorizes the church to use the keys, what standard are we to understand Jesus is telling us to use as we do that? What indicates to us whether a person is truly a member of the heavenly community or not? The first indication is their confession. Yes, in Matthew 18, Jesus will add, also their way of living will be an indicator to you. But Jesus is starting at what they say they believe about him. This is a king's authorization to his embassies on earth to publicly affirm as heaven's citizens those on earth who declare that Jesus is Christ and God. This is a king's authorization to his embassies on earth to not publicly affirm as heaven's citizens those who have not declared Jesus as Christ and God. And this is, this is the king's authorization to his embassies on earth to remove a previous affirmation made when a person stops confessing or following Jesus. Jesus only gave this responsibility to the church. He gave to us keys that he intends us to use to do what he directs us to do. Why would he do that? I think because Jesus wants there to be clarity on earth that protects people from being deceived into thinking they're going to heaven when they aren't. Jesus wants there also to be clarity for people who you might feel yourself to be, who struggle to be assured of their salvation. And he, by having you be part of his gathered people, intends to have those other people in the church tell you according to what is heard from your mouth and seen in your life, that you should have every reason to rest knowing that you will reach heaven by God's grace. And the church puts into effect Jesus' purposes when we invite people to be in communion with our church on the basis of their confession. Or we lovingly delay that invitation until someone has first come into saving faith and repentance. Now, as we'll see next week, the practical place the church gives or withholds the invitation is around the communion table. At the table, we expect that those sitting on our left and our right will be dining with us one day in heaven. All because of what Christ has done for us. They and we have all pulled up a chair because the Father graciously revealed Christ to our hearts 
and because others in Christ's kingdom have publicly heard our confession. Now the world is going to label such clarifying pronouncements that Jesus tells us to make as bigotry, self-righteousness, and closed-mindedness. We will be inclined at times to think that it is not our place to say, or because only God is in charge of our eternal state, we shouldn't make any pronouncements about the visible state of a person's life and what it reflects about their soul. But we must trust Christ and his word and his purposes. We have been authorized and instructed by the king to use these keys. We've covered a lot of ground. I'm going to conclude. Jesus says our confession of him is vitally important to our life as a church. Friends, you know as well as I do, we need help and grace in all of this. If we have understood him rightly in this matters, we assume there is still more we need to understand. If we have strayed or erred, we need him to reveal the way back to his paths. Our rock is always Christ. May we always stand on him, both in our confession and in our action. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is built on nothing more, for there cannot be anything more. There's nothing less, we pray, than Jesus Christ. You, our hope, and our confidence, our righteousness. We dare not trust in our own reason or intellect. We dare not trust in helpful arguments or rhetoric. We dare not trust in words crafted that sound good. We only, we pray, want to trust. In Christ, you are way, our truth, our life. We pray, Holy Spirit, that what is true of his words would be applied in truth to our hearts and our thinking and our acting. More than any label we could put on this church, we pray that we would be a church that follows Jesus rightly, truly, faithfully. Not so that we can boast that we have found the way that no other has or few can find, but so that we can boast in Christ who found us dead, brought us to life and gave us grace and mercy that we didn't deserve so that we might live with him and call others and invite them to live with him too. May that be our heart. May that be the way that we walk. Oh Lord, free us from pride. Oh, Lord, rescue us from seeking praise. Lord, keep us safe from the distraction of growing a thing so that we can say it's a thing. All for Jesus is what we pray. All for Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.